Thank you, uh, Kate, and thank you, Dom, for leading us into God's presence so, uh, so sensitively and wonderfully. Well, good morning, uh, Alton Baptist Church. It is lovely to be with you again. And uh, really good to be included in your series uh, from 1 Peter. I've enjoyed uh, taking uh, a look at that again afresh uh, in the light of the book. I don't know how many of you got the book uh, to sort of accompany the series. Tom writes uh, early Christian letters for everyone, and in particular, we're looking, aren't we, at, uh, at Peter. But uh, I'm going to read to you from the NIV. Thanks uh, if you take us back to, to that. Uh, we're at uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're looking at verses 8 to 16 today. Finally, all of you, I, I, I laugh a bit because this is a bit like one of my sermons, you know, finally coming halfway through the letter. <laughs> How many sermons have you heard that have finally right in the middle and you're sort of, oh, you're getting ready for the next hymn and it's an, at least another half to go. Finally, Peter says, all of you, live in harmony, be sympathetic, love as brothers and sisters, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. Sorry, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. In the NIV, if you're following this in your Bibles, you will see the heading for the passage uh, is, I think, um, persecution for, for, or, or suffering for doing good, or persecution for doing the right thing. Um, actually, in Tom Wright's book, he uh, heads up this part of the section as the new way of life. So I'm taking his heading, because next week, the second part of this passage is, uh, is really more to do with suffering for doing right. So whoever is earmarked for that, I won't be encroaching on that ground too much today. But I want us to be thinking about this new way of living, which is transforming not only of us, but through us to the world, to the situations and the people that God has placed us with. I'm going to begin, though, with looking at a different book. 
This is a book, it's a very, very old book. If you actually look at the actual copy here, it's very wrinkled, it's very small. Uh, this was published in 1989, and uh, so, yes, in my very, very early years, <laughs> um, by someone called Rodney Kingston. And um, it's called Restoring Your Walk with God. It's, um, it's, it was one of those really important books for me in my Christian journey and my growth in my faith and discipleship. I don't know, do you have a book that you can look back on that was kind of a pivotal book that came at a pivotal moment for you? And so much of who you are now in your faith and in your Christian life and your witness and just the way you live was really shaped and formed through what God spoke to you through a particular book. I expect if we had time and I asked for a few suggestions, we'd have some great suggestions coming out. This is mine, or at least one of them, but this was very key at that time. And um, in particular, chapter four of this book, Restoring Your Walk with God, Rodney Kingston has a chapter that he entitles Distinctive Through Devotion. Distinctive Through Devotion. And in that chapter, he describes how the temple priests kind of ministered in the inner courts of the temple, by which he means that's the Holy of Holies, that very, very special place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept and only the chief, the, um, chief priest was in, allowed in there, and that just one day a year on the Day of Atonement. Uh, the Holy of Holies and then the Holy Place and then the Court of the Priests uh, were known as the Inner Courts. And then you had the Outer Courts, which were kind of growing out from the center. And you had the court of Israel that only the Jewish men could go into. But just around that was the court of the women, which the Jewish men and women could go into. And then around the outside were the court of the Gentiles, which anyone could go into. And so the priests would minister to God in the inner courts through the sacrifices and the burning of incense and all of that. And then they would go from the inner court to the outer court and they would minister to the people. And when they were in the inner court and they were burning the incense, this incense, we're told in Exodus, was made of a, from a unique recipe. Recipe is probably not the right word, but you get the picture, I'm sure. There are clear instructions in Exodus for the priests how to make this incense and what went into it. And there was very strict instruction that no one else was allowed to make this incense or use it for any other purpose than to burn it on, I think there might be a picture there of a priest putting this incense, which was in a powdered form, onto the flame on the altar of incense. And the smell, this unique aroma, would go up to God. And they believed this was kind of the symbolic of the prayers of the people and the worship of the people being offered to God through the priests. Of course, this is Old Testament picture. But the priests, having ministered to God and brought in that very special place, that holy of holies, where they believed the presence of God was through the Ark of the Covenant. So having ministered to God in the holy place, in that intimate place, the prayers and the, and the worship, then the priests would go to the, out to the outer courts and minister to the people, but they would be carrying the aroma in their clothes 
on their beards, in their hair. And Rodney Kingston says, the people would know that the priests had been worshipping in the presence of God because they brought that unique aroma out into the world to minister to the people. And, you know, that whole concept, that whole image, really, really spoke to me many years ago. That aroma that they carried was distinctive of their devotion to the Lord. The people knew the priest had spent time in God's presence. The Apostle Paul kind of picks up a little bit on this idea and this theme in his letter to the church in Corinth, where he writes, Thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. So in other words, Paul was saying, when we are in Christ, in other words, when we have a relationship with Christ, through the cross, through the receipt of forgiveness, when our lives have been transformed by the, um, the grace and mercy of Jesus, we are in Christ, we're clothed in him, a bit like the priests were clothed in their garments, then we carry that aroma, that fragrance of the knowledge of Christ, is what Paul is picking up here. And the reason this was so life-changing for me, as a concept, as an image, and I've carried with me through my Christian life, is that I was brought up believing that I had to be a certain kind of person. Okay, fine. No problem with that. But it was reinforced in me that to be a certain kind of Christian, I had to do this, and I had to do that, and I had to do that, and there were certain things I needed to focus on and get right and do properly. And I had to look at myself, and I had to change this and that and the other in my life. In other words... It was kind of, it wasn't so much in these words, but the connotation that I picked up through a quite strict Baptist church was that to become a new and different person, to live a different life, to live a new life, it was through sheer effort and self-discipline. If I tried hard enough, I could be good enough, was kind of the message that was coming through. And I needed to, to rehear the message because that was so much law and not enough grace. And I kind of know that as a child and growing up um, and, you know, in the old way of quite traditional Baptist churches of, you know, very evangelical approach to Scripture and trying to drum into the young people, you know, that uh, we don't live like this, we live like this and and they were trying to shape us and mold us, and I understand all of that. But this book, I needed to read this book to set me free from that dogmatic kind of following a particular path and striving and struggling to be good enough for God and to truly receive his grace and mercy. knew this too. 
In fact, we read in Acts chapter 4 and verse 13, sorry, I didn't get time to put this onto a slide, but we read these words about Peter himself who wrote the letter. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. This is the people who were listening to them. They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So what is it that transformed Peter? What is it that transforms us? It's being with Jesus, isn't it? What was it that, that, that impregnated those priests' clothing with the aroma of the incense? It was being in the holy place, spending time in that place of devotion, learning to know Jesus as friend and Lord and Savior and get into his word and know him through his word. Actually, it's taking time just to sit with him and worship him in an attitude of prayer that we then can be transformed by his Holy Spirit, by his love, by his grace, and by all that we learn of him. My mother used to say to me, and maybe your parents said this to you, oh, you're spending too much time with so-and-so. You have had that said over you. For me, it was my name. To me. <laughs> he was a few years older, and boy, did I get into trouble because I spent too much time with Paul. <laughs> um, he's a lovely Christian guy now. He's, he's a delight. But um, uh, yeah, I, I got into all sorts of scrapes because I spent too much time with Paul. The more time we spend with certain people, we pick up, don't we, some of the traits and the characteristics. And so that is true of, of Christ, actually. We can never spend too much time with Jesus in that special, intimate place of devotion. We become like the people we look up to and spend time with. And that's true with Jesus. So you may be asking, okay, why am I presenting this image first and so much detail, rather than jumping straight into today's portion in Peter's letter. Well, it's because, I think, if we take our passage of Peter's letter for today, out of its co-text, in other words, the rest of the letter, which was a letter of encouragement written by Peter to the scattered and persecuted church who were living in fear, their faith and if we take the letter out of its wider context i.e. the backdrop of scripture as a whole that presents the love, grace and faithfulness of God then it seems to me our passage can look a whole lot like another list of do's and don'ts just to remind us our passage says live in harmony with everyone be sympathetic, be loving, be compassionate, be humble. Don't repay evil with evil and insult with insult. Bless those who are evil in insulting towards you. Don't be frightened. Keep a clear conscience and so on. And if we're not careful, that's a list against which 
we feel we need to measure up and perhaps a list with which we can tend to beat ourselves up with. Because when we're, I mean, these are all good things, but I wanted us to start not with the list of consequences, but to remind us actually these are the fruit of not, of not uh, effort and self-discipline and sheer determination, but these are the natural fruit of being in right relationship with God through Christ Jesus. And it seems to me the key verse actually in our passage comes a little way down, and it's this. Always be prepared, it says in verse 15, to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Actually, we simply need to be people of hope. And if we are people of hope, carrying the aroma and fragrance of Christ, I suggest that this is saying to us, people will notice. We will be distinctive in the way the priests were distinctive when they went out to the outer courts and ministered to the people. They didn't need to remind them where they'd been or what they'd been doing. It was obvious. It was upon them. They had been in God's presence. And if we are people who take time in God's presence, we will have that aroma of hope us and people will notice it and they'll want to they'll ask us I think that's what this is suggesting that they'll want to know what it is about us they'll want to know the reason for the hope that we have because they will want that hope because like the people to whom this letter is written the scattered Jews the persecuted church they were living in dark and dangerous times. Now, for us, it may not, probably isn't, physical persecution, threat of death. But we certainly live in dark times, don't we? We live in challenging circumstances. We're facing up to all sorts of things that will naturally fill us with fear. And I think one of the key things that Peter was saying to the, to the scattered and alienated, persecuted church was, don't fear what others fear. But it's natural, isn't it, for us to fear what we face, what we see going on around us. I was reminded, I think it was this morning or yesterday morning, I think, of that reminder that, you know, as we, in these end times, as the Bible talks about it, what does it say? There'll be wars and rumors of wars. There'll be earthquakes. There'll be famine. Well, there's three things we've kind of been reading and hearing about so much in recent days. But Scripture goes on to say, but these are just the birth pains of the time to come. But there's much that we could be fearful of. You know, with the energy crisis, with bills going through the roof, cost of living skyrocketing, with... Maybe uncertainty about jobs and mortgages and maybe health 
from COVID and other things that have just... We have so many things that we face that could fill us with fear. And yet actually what God is inviting us to do is to spend time in his presence and soak up his promises of faithfulness and hope and love. And it seems to me that this verse, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, seems to me that's evangelism in a nutshell, isn't it? I don't know, when you hear a sermon about evangelism, you know, sharing your faith, what comes to mind? Is it going knocking on doors and trying to start conversations or in the workplace, you know, start sort of teaching the gospel? How does that make you feel? If you're anything like me, it makes me feel really anxious because I'm rubbish at that. It makes me feel really inadequate. I'd rather leave it to the experts. But evangelism isn't meant to be like that. In fact, to pinch Tom Wright's expression, evangelism is for everyone. So if someone asks you, note, they come and ask you. That takes the pressure off already, doesn't it? When someone asks you why you have hope, just tell them. I know it'll all turn out right in the end. That's basically the gospel, isn't it? I know I'm forgiven. I know I'm saved. I've got a Lord who is greater than all of these things. I know it will all turn out right in the end. Now, where does that hope come from? Is that just wishful thinking? Mind over matter? Gritty determination? No. It's knowing a saviour, isn't it? King David, or at least the psalmist David, we don't know how old he was when... He wrote this, but he wrote in Psalm 62, my soul finds rest in God and my hope comes from him. So it's resting in God that gives us the hope. For truly, he's my rock and my salvation. He's my fortress. I shall not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He's my mighty rock, my refuge, Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him. That's what the priests were doing, wasn't it? They were offering incense. They were pouring their hearts out to him. For God is our refuge. There's a lovely verse in Deuteronomy, isn't there, that, uh, where it says, God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. That's a good picture, isn't it? Actually, he's carrying us. That's why we have hope. Because he never lets us go. He doesn't drop us. Psalm 46, verse 10, be still and know that I am God. Exodus 14, do you remember the, the Israelites were escaping from Egypt? Uh, Moses had led them out of captivity and they were escaping and then the Egyptian army was chasing after them and they found themselves hemmed in by the Red Sea. Remember that? And they go, oh Moses, why did you bring us out here to die and you could have left us in, in Egypt anyway? God's answer to them is this. Do not be afraid. The Lord will fight for you. We were singing this just a moment ago. You need only to be still. It's that being still in the presence of God that brings our hope. It builds our hope and our faith. There's a lovely old hymn. I don't know if you remember it. Uh, 
goes like this. Yeah? I do not know what lies ahead, the way I cannot see, yet one stands near to be my guide. He'll show the way to me. And the chorus, I know who holds the future. And he'll guide me with his hand. And so on it goes. And that song, that hymn, reminds me of a poem as well by Minnie Louise Haskins. It may not be familiar as a poem, but I'm sure it's familiar as a quote from King George VI in the King's Speech, December 1939. Now, that date will uh, be very poignant, won't it? 1939. What started in 1939? Second World War. And King George VI in the King's speech, Christmas speech, quoted Minnie Louise Haskins with these words. And I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. Putting our hand into the hand of God is walking with him because he knows the future and he will never leave us nor forsake us. When we rest in this truth and build our lives upon his promises and walk daily in his presence, like those Old Testament priests, we will absorb the fragrance of Christ and carry it on us wherever we go. Have you ever walked past someone and their fragrance just kind of lingers around you? Or someone walks into a room and you're suddenly aware of a fragrance, a perfume. Ooh. That's what God wants us to be. To walk into places, into situations, carrying that fragrance of Christ. People will notice now, of course, I'm sure you know as well as I do, we can sometimes be aware of not-so-nice fragrances that people carry into rooms. They can linger as well, can't they? I wonder what fragrance we carry with us. Do we carry a fragrance of judgmentalism, of, of self-righteousness? What is our fragrance? What is our fragrance actually seen in, in that list now of fruit? Seeking harmony. I'm going through the list, but I'm expressing them slightly differently now. Because the aroma will be experienced by others when we are seeking harmony, not discord. When we're growing in sympathy and empathy. When we're loving as Christ has loved us. When we're exuding compassion as Christ did. Seeing through Christ's eyes the needs of the world, when we're developing humility, when we're showing gentleness and respect, when we're learning how to bless even those who are evil and insulting towards us, when we're seeking peace and pursuing it, when we're living not in fear but in faith, when we're seeking to keep a clear conscience, coming regularly to the table to receive fresh forgiveness and living as forgiven people. What a delightful fragrance that would be. 
I had a little bit of a play. It's a new way, isn't it? It's a distinctive way of living. Not through effort, but just opening ourselves up to the love of God, the transforming power of his spirit, the expression of his grace. And as we carry that fragrance, it will attract people. It will intrigue them. And I believe they do want to know, where does our hope come from? And we just need to be ready to tell them. In Jesus' name and for his sake.